Hey, what's up, big fam? How you guys doing? Good? It's good to see you all. Hey, you, everybody looks really good in their masks, I just have to say. It's a really nice look for some of you. Some of you needed it. I think it's an improvement. And, and the rest of you, uh, just kidding. It's just a little joke. You're all beautiful. Somebody thinks you're cute out there. Somebody. Sometimes, sometimes you see a couple and you're like, man, I'm really glad they think each other are cute. That's what I think. That's, that's kind of mean. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry if that was offensive. Sorry if that's you. I don't, it's not you. I was not talking about you. Um, so <laughs> today uh, we wanted to start talking, uh, start looking through uh, some different stories in the book of John uh, that are very interesting. I think, um, I think it's very easy when we're talking about Jesus and we're talking about the Bible and talking about Christianity. I think it's very easy for us to talk about how much God loves other people out there, right? So God loves poor people. God loves people that are oppressed. God loves people that are mourning. God loves people that are hurting. It's very easy to talk about that, right? And it's a very encouraging thing to know that that God is always out there for the people that are hurting and for the people that are broken. And I also think it's very easy to talk about sin. So we could spend, I could spend, we could sit here for hours and I could just tell you everything that you do that's wrong, and you could tell me everything that I do that's wrong, and we could talk about that for hours and hours, and we could feel really bad about how bad we are, and we could have conversations and conversations about that, but what's really hard to talk about sometimes is simply Jesus' love for us. I think it's very hard to just talk about Jesus' unconditional love for us, and what I think is very interesting is that when you read the Bible, especially the stories of Jesus, the emphasis Jesus is bringing is not necessarily how much he loves that person way out there, and not necessarily how much he wants you to change. The main emphasis in the stories of Jesus is how much he loves you unconditionally and the lengths he was willing to go through to to love you and to restore you and bring you into a relationship with him. That's really the focus. But I feel like because Jesus' love is so unfathomable, so unconditional, and we really don't have anything to base it in, right? So, so I love my wife. My wife loves me. That, that's really awesome. But there's no, she doesn't give me perfect love. I don't give her perfect love, right? If you have an amazing relationship with your parents, they, they might be really awesome parents, right? But they're not going to give you perfect love. They're still going to fail at times. And so when we're talking about Jesus, a perfect love, think about unconditional. There's nothing that you can do that will make Jesus stop loving you. It can be really hard to get our heads wrapped around what that means. Um, so I want to spend the next couple of weeks looking through some stories about how Jesus loves people unconditionally. And the focus is going to be on you and I, on you, how Jesus loves you. And we're going to look at some stories through example of how Jesus loves someone else and apply them to ourselves and see what we can learn in our everyday lives. Does that sound good? Yeah? Okay, good. So, so if you have a Bible or if you have a phone, I assume you have a phone, uh, look up John chapter 8, and uh, we're going to be spending some time there. Um, and as you're pulling that up, we're also going to put it on the screens, uh, so don't worry. But as we're, as we're teeing that up, I want to give a little context to the story that we're going to be talking about, right? So this is a story of Jesus interacting with someone. So Jesus comes down to earth and is teaching uh, the, the hope of the forgiveness of sins to all people, right? So he's going into all these different towns and all, all these different places, and he's telling people, hey, the kingdom of God is here, hope is here, the Messiah is here, and there is an opportunity to have forgiveness of sins, everybody, no matter who you are or where you're like. And as Jesus was doing his ministry, over the course of time, he started making uh, some religious leaders, they're called Pharisees, uh, he started making 
get some religious leaders pretty mad because as he's going about teaching the forgiveness of sins, Jesus keeps associating with basically what they perceive to be the wrong kinds of people, right? So you would think that when God comes to to bring all the good people up, he's going to spend time with the good people, right? And that's what they thought. But instead, Jesus spends his time with people like prostitutes, with people like tax collectors, which would would have been a very corrupt uh, financial guys, right? He spends time with social outcasts of different types. He spends time with people that have fallen beyond, um, I don't know, beyond coming back. And so the Pharisees are starting to really get mad at Jesus because they're thinking, hey, I thought you came for us and you're spending time with all the wrong kinds of people. But Jesus really, really, really crosses the line in their minds when he starts telling these broken people when he starts telling disreputable people that their sins are forgiven. He really, really starts making them mad. And I think the reason for that is understandable. These religious leaders spent their whole lives studying and trying to perfect uh, what is called the law of Moses. And we're gonna find this in the story, the law of Moses. And the law of Moses is found in the first five books of the Bible, and you can read it sometime. It's a trip. If you wanna read it, there's some very interesting things in there. And basically what the law of Moses is, is this law that God gives to his people, the Israelites, on how to understand what God's perfection is and how to understand how imperfect we are. So it's basically a very, very rigorous set of rules. If you read it, you will find rules on things you never thought you ever needed rules about. It's basically impossible to follow because it's so rigorous. And the point of the law of Moses to the people, to God's people, was that God's people would try and follow the law of Moses and realize their need for grace, right? If you could follow the law of Moses perfectly, that meant you were perfect. That meant that there was, there was no blemish on you if you could follow it perfectly. And no one could follow it perfectly. And so the idea was that they would turn to God and be God, uh, say, God, I'm so thankful for your grace. God, I'm so thankful for your love. That even though I'm imperfect, that I can't uphold this law, you love me anyways, and you want to be a part of my life anyways. But these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, who would study all day long the law of Moses, even though they studied it nonstop, they didn't really understand what it was about because they thought the point of the law of Moses was that they could master it that they could somehow, in learning all the rules and doing all the right things, they thought that they could somehow be perfect, and some of them had even convinced themselves that they had become some version of perfection, that over time they had learned it so well and gotten so good at it that they've become in some kind of elite status. And so when Jesus, imagine this with me, right? Let's be a little sympathetic to them. So Jesus now, so you spent your whole life, you spent 40, 60, 70 years trying to perfect the law of Moses. You feel like you've got it down. Um, Now Jesus comes up to another person who is like a prostitute, and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And you think you're way up here, and Jesus says, and guess who's up here with you? The prostitute, like today. You spent your whole life trying to learn all these things, and I've immediately elevated somebody that you would have put yourself above, right? That you, somebody that you would have looked down on. And needless to say, uh, the, these religious people were getting very upset, and they, they were pretty much out for blood. So this is the story that we're walking into. That's the context. So if you have your Bible open to John chapter 8, we're going to read the story together. Here's what it says. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Um, At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap, of course, in order for having a basis for accusing him. So they're not, they're not really interested in justice. They're really interested in accusing Jesus. Now, the Pharisees knew something that was really tricky. They knew that Jesus claimed he was not here to abolish the law of Moses. Jesus would have said, I'm not here to get rid of the law of Moses. I'm here to complete the law of Moses. And so the Pharisees thought to themselves, what situation can we put Jesus in where either he's going to defy his forgiveness or he's going to defy the law of Moses? He's either going to defy his forgiveness or he's going to defy the law of Moses. So what they do, this is one of the most terrible things I've ever heard in my entire life. They wait for this woman to be at her weakest moment. Then they basically grab her, abduct her, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. And they know, they know that the penalty for adultery in the law of Moses is the death sentence. They know that the penalty for adultery is the death sentence. So they think to themselves, if Jesus ignores the law of Moses and he forgives this woman, he's essentially saying, I don't care about the laws that God gave you a long time ago. We're done with those. So he would defy the law of Moses. However, if Jesus upholds the law of Moses and says, you know what, you got me, you're right, she deserves to be stoned, he would be defying the forgiveness of sins that he had been preaching since the day he came. But let's imagine this. This is, not, this is not really a Sunday school story. Let's imagine this for a second. This woman, a real person, right? A real person with feelings, with fears, with sensitivities, uh, all those things. A real woman. These men waited for this woman to make the biggest mistake of her life. They knew that she had a pattern, most likely, of committing adultery or, or having sexual affairs, right? And so they waited until this uh, presumably married woman has a sexual encounter with a married man. They're waiting. They barge in, and they take her completely exposed, completely afraid, completely petrified at the worst moment, the worst mistake she's ever made in her entire life. I mean, just, just imagine that. Just imagine how terrified she would be. They took her. They abducted her. They're dragging her through the streets. She's completely exposed. She's absolutely terrifying, sobbing, 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 crying, walking through the streets, passing people that she knew, passing family members, passing her community, sees a crowd. They're dragging this woman as she's struggling, crying in the worst moment of her life. They don't even take the man. They don't even care about justice. They're just using her to make a point. So they're taking her because she's vulnerable into the middle of the crowd and they throw her before the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you do with a person like this? It's absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrible thing that they've done. And let's continue on in the story. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, what do you say? And continues, but Jesus bent down to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, okay, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Teacher, what do I do? Teacher, what do, I do with this woman right here? We caught her. We got her. What are you going to do? Send her to hell. What, what are we going to do? He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down to write on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. First the older ones, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Then Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
No one, sir, she said. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So what can we learn from Jesus' heart for us from this story? What can we learn about Jesus' heart for us from this story? Because I'll be real. I, I really think, I, a lot of us have had some very terrible moments. All of us have had terrible moments. I really don't think that most of us in here think that if we were caught in our absolute worst moment, the moment that we've never told anybody about, the moment that we're most ashamed of, the moment that we, we try not to think about, that we've blocked from our memories, that Jesus, if, Je- if we were caught in our absolute worst moment and we were hurled before the feet of Jesus, I don't think most of us think that Jesus would actually respond that way. I don't think most of us actually think that Jesus would respond that way because here's the fundamental problem. I think most of us think Jesus cares more about sin than he cares about you. I think most of us think that Jesus cares more about sin than he cares about you. Here's the first point. Jesus did not come to purge the world of sin. He came for you. Jesus did not come to purge the world of sin. He came for you. The Pharisees, these teachers, these guys that supposedly understood the Bible, were under a fundamental misunderstanding of what God wanted from humanity, a fundamental misunderstanding. The Pharisees thought that God wanted to purge the world of sin. The Pharisees thought that God cared more about sin than the individual. And the purge just means to do whatever it takes to get rid of any kind of blemish, of any kind of disgrace, of any kind of impurity, to do whatever it takes to get rid of it so it does not taint the pure things around it. So the Pharisees spent all their time focusing on what they thought was pure, trying to be in the camp that they thought was pure, trying to stay in the area that they thought was pure. And anytime they they saw an impurity, they thought what God would want them to do is let's get rid of this impurity. Let's let's destroy, let's, let's excommunicate this impurity. Let's cancel this impurity. Let's get rid of this impurity because they thought that Jesus came into the world to purge the world of sin. So they say, Jesus, get rid of this blemish. You see what, I, I've, we've thrown this mistake in front of you. Jesus, what are you going to do? Doesn't she disgust you? But Jesus didn't come into this world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come into this world to condemn that woman. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to save. He came to save and grant the grace that she needed to be a part of his family. When Jesus looked at that woman, he saw someone that he loved made in his own image with unimaginable value, that just like everyone else, including the Pharisees, needed a rescue. But I think, I think many of us think that Jesus cares more about sin than he cares about me. I think many of us, when we think, why would Jesus come into the world, we would think something like this. We, we wouldn't say, Jesus came, uh, didn't come into the world for me, Jesus came to get rid of my sin. We might say, Jesus didn't come into the world for me. He came for the people that are more upright than I am. That's what the woman thought. They, they see, Jesus the Messiah is here. Oh, he's probably here to get the Pharisees, and they're going to kick it to heaven, right? She would, she would have never thought that Jesus came for me. Jesus didn't come for me. He came to get rid of sinners. That's what the Pharisees thought. They're like, Jesus, Jesus didn't come for the individual. He came to destroy the people that are really messing it up, that are really tainting the world around us, but when you believe that Jesus fundamentally came into the world to purge the world of sin, it leads you to some very incorrect ways of thinking, and, and we're gonna spend a couple minutes just talking about those incorrect ways of thinking. Here's the first one, here's the first one. When you think Jesus cares more about sin than he cares about you, 
you tend to diminish your own imperfections while elevating others. When you think that Jesus cares more about sin than he cares about you, you tend to diminish your own imperfections while elevating others. And this makes sense because if Jesus came into the world to get rid of the sinners, if Jesus came into the world to get rid of the people that are really screwing up, you're mentally going to do any type of backflip to make sure that you're in the right kind of category. Have you ever been in one of those classes um, where only the top 20 or 30% or 50%, whatever it is, pass? Have been in these classes before? They, generally, they're like the more specific you're going for. Like if you're like, I don't know, trying to be like a doctor or something like that, you're going to have to be in some of these classes. Um, but what's interesting about these classes where only the top 30% make it through, only the top 30% pass, is in every other class you've ever had in your entire life, you're asking one question. You're only asking one question. You're asking, how am I doing, right? So in high school chemistry, you're only asking, how am I doing? Am I learning what I need to learn? Am I making the teacher happy? Am I trying? was very bad at chemistry, like ridiculously bad at chemistry. So and the minimum I could do was like turn in my busy work. Like that was, it was really nice. So am I turning in my things on time? You're just asking one question. How am I doing? But if you're in one of these classes where only the top 30% get the pass, the question completely changes. No longer do you ask, how am I doing? Instead, you ask, am I doing better than them? That's it. You're not asking, how am I doing? You're asking, am I doing better than them. Honestly, honestly, if you're in one of those classes, it doesn't matter how much you're learning. It does not, right? It doesn't matter how happy you're making the teacher. It doesn't matter how well you're advancing. All that matters is that you're better than the people around you. As long as you're better than the people around you, you're safe, you're good. And that's exactly how the Pharisees thought, because they thought that Jesus was only going to take the elite into heaven, and they're just going to kick it forever while everybody else burns, right? They would do whatever it took, not to look into their own hearts, but simply to be better than the people around them. So they would take something like the law of Moses, which was intended to expose your own heart and draw you to God. And instead, they would use it to expose the sins around them. Instead of asking, how am I doing with my relationship with God? Now all they're asking is, am I doing better than the person around me? And that is what drove them to do such a terrible thing as to abduct this woman and throw her before Jesus, just to say, am I doing better than her? And I think that's what many of us do. I think that's what a lot of us do sometimes. We, we might say something like this. I might say something like this. Uh, disclaimer, I'm gonna list some sins and I'm not equating these sins, but just track with the mentality for a second, okay? So some of us might say this, yeah, I know I, I, know I struggle with pride. I know I struggle with thinking I'm better than other people. I, I know that's my thing, but that's not really that big of a deal. I know I struggle with thinking I'm better, uh, better than other people, but that's really not a big deal. You know who needs the smack, though. You know who really, you know who really needs it, those racists. Man, we should really take down those racists. Now, wait a second. Isn't racism just thinking you're better than another group of people? Isn't the same seed behind both of those problems? Just one has gone out to a much more extreme degree, and one is a personal degree. One of them has much greater consequences in our world and can hurt others, and the other one primarily affects myself. But can't you see, as a prideful person, how someone might get to a place of racism? You might say this, I, I, I know I'm addicted to porn, like I know I really struggle with that, but I mean like a lot of people struggle with that, that's not a really big deal. You know who needs the smack? Those crackheads. Those crackheads really need the smack. Man, somebody really better deal with those crackheads. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Wait a second, though. Wait a second. Isn't porn just another substance that you also cannot overcome? Isn't just another thing that you also cannot overcome? That just like these people over here that are supposedly so terrible and struggling and have made all the, right, all the wrong decisions and they're over there, aren't you struggling just as much? Except these people, it affects their families and it affects their, it's illegal, it's all these kind of things. And this one only really you know about. That's, that's the big difference, right? It, that's how we think. That's how we think. We, we might think, yeah, I know I struggle with gossip, I know, I know that's, that, like, that's not good. Like, that's in the Bible somewhere. You know who really needs the smack, though? Those people that hurt other people. Man, the murderers. Man, they need the smack, right? I don't know, like rapists. People, people that hurt other people. Man, those people. Those people are the ones that need trouble. Now, wait a second. Isn't gossip just using somebody else's vulnerable moments to elevate yourself? Isn't that the same as harming other people in physical ways? And, and Jesus would ask the question, not, not to say that those have, obviously, those have very different effects, right? We all can agree those have very different effects. But Jesus would ask the question, why aren't you seeing grace? Why aren't you drawing to grace? Can't you see the path? Can't you see that in, in your heart and in that person's heart is the same seed of sin, but their soil was much more fertile than your soil. You were taught that racism was wrong and they weren't. But can't you see that perhaps if you switch places, you, what you would do might not be very different from the very people you condemn. And that's exactly what he's looking at the Pharisees. In that dangerous mentality of diminishing your own imperfections, of diminishing your own flaws, and elevating the flaws of other people is what took well-intended followers of God to drag a completely exposed, vulnerable person just to throw her at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, am I better than this person? Am I good? Am I in the top 30%? When you think Jesus cares more about sin than he cares about you, you might think this. Here's another one. Jesus didn't come for me. Jesus came to make me better. Jesus didn't come for me. He came to make me better. And I think perhaps the vast majority might fall into thinking this at times, that Jesus cares more about sin than he cares about me. He didn't come to save me, he came to get rid of my sin. So in order for Jesus to truly love me, I must get rid of all my sin first. That's what I gotta do. If Jesus is gonna love me, I gotta get rid of all my sin. So we become moralists, right? We look at the Bible and we turn it into, into a big list of rules, right? I can't do this, I can't think that, I can't go over here, I can't hang out with this people. And it's like there's a little thermometer, right? And you're going, every time you do something good, you're going up. Every time you're doing something bad, you're going down. And hopefully at the very top of this is Jesus' love. And what we think to ourselves is if I can purge my life from my sin, if I can overcome all the things that are wrong, if I can be good enough, maybe Jesus will love me up here. And then we feel terrible when we screw up. Oh, man, because it goes way further down than it goes up when you do something wrong. We feel absolutely terrible. And when we hear Jesus loves me, right? So when I say Jesus loves you, what we actually think is this. Jesus will love me eventually. When I say Jesus loves you, what you actually hear is Jesus will love you eventually. Jesus will love you eventually when I become a better person. Jesus will love me eventually when I stop having so much anxiety and I finally learn to trust, right? Jesus will love me when I overcome my doubts. Jesus will love me when I break my addiction. Jesus will love me when I stop having these sexual temptations. And every time we hear Jesus loves me, all we actually hear is Jesus will love me when. 
and we fill in a blank. He loved me when? Whatever my deepest insecurity is, whatever my greatest struggle is, whenever I take care of that first, that is when Jesus will love me. Do you want, you want to see something cute AF? You want to see? <laughs> you have that picture. Oh, uh, this is me proposing to my wife, Sarah. This was a really cute moment. Isn't that cute AF? That's, a, that's, where we went, that's where Sarah and I went on our first date. You can't really tell, but the way it was set up, it was really sweet, where uh, me and some buddies, we took the tree, like the, there was this tree, and we rigged it up with lights. So as soon as I got down on one knee, the lights clicked on, and it was, it was this pretty magical moment. You know, whatever. That's fine. It's freaking, I don't know. I'm cute. Whatever. Um, so we, <laughs> I show you this story because um, when, when I proposed to Sarah, I, uh, I, I don't really get nervous. Like, that, I don't, that's never been a thing. I was very nervous. I was very, very nervous. And I, I was sweating pretty hard. In fact, I wasn't supposed to wear that uh, cheap Walmart jacket, but I had such bad pit stains that I had to put it on. And uh, I was so nervous because I was putting it all on the line. I was putting everything on the line. I was like, I'm totally putting myself out there. Right? And all I knew, all I knew in my mind was, I will put it all out on line. I will totally embarrass myself. I will, I will make this as ridiculous because all I want is Sarah to be in my life forever. That's all I want. So I will, I will do whatever it takes. I'm not really much of a romantic, but I'll, I'll like whip something up because all I want is for Sarah to be in my life for the rest of my life. And you know how heartbreaking it would have been if I got down on one knee and I was like, Sarah, will you marry me? And Sarah said, uh, she was like, yeah, I'll, I'll marry you, like eventually. Like after I overcome all my insecurities. Oh, <laughs> That would hurt so bad. If I got down on one knee, I was, like, I was like, Sarah, will you marry me? And she's like, yeah, I'll marry you eventually. Like once I process my past and like overcome all, all my issues. I'm like, these are, I'm just giving an example. These are not her particular struggles. But uh, if I got down on one knee, I was, like, I was like, Sarah, will you marry me? And I was serious. I was not sarcastic. But <laughs> Sarah, will you marry me? And she, she's like, yeah, I'll totally marry you. Like once I overcome all my fears, like I, I need to stop being afraid. Oh my gosh, that would stab me in the heart so bad. That would stab me in the heart so bad. Because what I'm saying in that moment right there is I'm saying I will do absolutely anything to have you in my life forever. I know you're imperfect. I know I'm imperfect. I know we're going to have a bunch of things. I know there's going to be a lot of struggles. But I will do whatever it takes to keep you in my life forever. And I want to do the journey. I want to do the journey. If you have something that you're really nervous about, if, you, if you've made yourself perfect by this point, th- then we don't get the journey together. That's the beauty of it. If you've overcome everything that you needed to overcome, there is no journey. There is no relationship. I, I think we think like this. I think we think Jesus saves like this. And this next slide. I think Jesus saves like this. Uh, we think this. That first, I need to get rid of my sin. If I, I want to be a part uh, of what Jesus is doing, first I need to get rid of my sin. Whatever my sin is. Fill in your blank, right? You got your blank in your head. Um, then Jesus will forgive me for the sins that I already got rid of. So first I need to get rid of my problems, and then Jesus will forgive me for the things that I got rid of. And then Jesus will save me. Then Jesus will save me. But that's not it at all. That's not how Jesus works. That's not what he asks us to do at all. Look at the story in John chapter 8, verse 7. When they kept on questioning, uh, questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to walk away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. Here's how it actually works. First, Jesus saves your life. 
First, Jesus saves the life of the woman. The very first thing Jesus does is throw himself into the middle of a situation where the crowd around her is going to kill him, kill her. That's the very first thing he does. First, he saves you. Then he forgives. Then he forgives. Then he says, then neither do I condemn you. He saved her first. He saved her first. Then he forgives. And lastly, very last, the last thing on the list, then he calls her to leave her sin behind after he gives her something to leave her sins for. And here's the point I want you to get from this. Jesus loves you for who you are right now, not for what you could be. Jesus loves you for who you are right now, not for what you could be. He doesn't love you for the idea that eventually you'll get over your sin. He isn't asking you to clean up first. He's asking you to run to him. And in the deepest moment, that's when he got on one knee. That in the worst moment, that's when he died. He's asking you first, first let me save you. First, you don't need to clean yourself up first. I love you for who you are right now, not for when you clean yourself up. The apostle Paul writes it this way. He says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, that's Jesus loved us. When we were at our worst, when we couldn't overcome our addiction, when we couldn't get it right, when we couldn't pull it together, our absolute worst, exposed, humiliated, terrified, the worst moment of our lives, the worst mistake I've ever made, when I'm grabbed and thrown at the feet of Jesus, that's the moment that Jesus died for you. He would have died for you right then. There is no condition. There is no condition. He doesn't love you because he thinks you're gonna turn out great. He doesn't love you because he knows eventually you'll get rid of your sin. He loves you right now. He loves you because you are fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. That you were made to be in a relationship with him. That you will always be incomplete without being in a relationship with him. And that he will always mourn, that he will always grieve every moment that you're not in a relationship with him. Unconditional. You can't do anything to shake that love. He loves you in your worst moment. The whole notion that God wants nothing to do with you because of, you, of something you struggle with is absurd. It's completely contrary to the heart of God that he, God doesn't love you because you can't overcome your anxiety. It's insane that God doesn't love you because you can't, you can't shake your porn addiction. That's insane that God loves you because you're depressed, because you're lazy, that's insane that God, lo- that God doesn't love you because you have the, the wrong attractions. That's insane. Every moment, at every time, God loves you, and God came exactly for you. What do you think was going through Jesus' mind when they took this broken woman, this, this woman that had been struggling, that was in her worst, most shameful, most humiliating, most excruciating moment of her entire life? What do you, what do you think they did? What, what do you think Jesus thought when those men took her and threw her at the feet of Jesus? Do you, do you think he was like, oh, good job. Oh, good job. You got, good job. You caught one. Good job. No. What do you think he did when they took her and they're like, send her to hell? Jesus, what are you going to do with this person? Jesus looked at her right in the eyes. The same way he looks at you and me and every single person. Jesus looked at her right in the eyes and he says, I came for you. This is the person that I came for. The very person you think I've come to destroy the very person you think I've come to expose, the very person you think I've come to purge, that's exactly who I've came for. I came for her. I've come for you. 
There's nothing that you, the, the people that feel like they, they could never have me, those are the people I came for. That's exactly who I came for. Jesus didn't come here to make you feel worse than you already do. Jesus didn't come here to yell at you for the things that you're already insecure about. Jesus didn't come here to make you better so that one day, maybe one day, maybe he could love you one day. Jesus came here for you right now. The worst moment of your life, he would have died for you right then. And this woman, she was freed. She was liberated. The worst day of her life in a second, in a flash, became the best day of, the, the best day of her life she's ever had. She was free because even though that officially locked in in that moment, she would always be ostracized from her community. Even from that, everyone she ever is gonna know is always gonna have that picture in her mind of her just laying there naked before Jesus. That, that her life on earth was completely ruined in that day. The worst day of her life was also the best day of her life because it was the day Jesus freed her. It was the day Jesus freed her to place her hope in something in the future, in something that matters, into something that was stable and free her from the consequences of her sin. The cheap way out is to say that that woman's adultery didn't have a penalty. I think a lot of us will do this sometimes, that we'll numb ourselves to the consequences of sin. We'll say, you know, it's not that big of a deal, or, you know, God doesn't care. God forgives everybody. It's, it's all good. That's the cheap way out. The cheap way out is to say that the woman's adultery didn't have a penalty, but that's not true. The law of Moses that was handed down from God clearly said that the person caught in adultery was to be executed. So how did Jesus forgive her? How did Jesus uphold the law of God and still say, then neither do I condemn you? I'll tell you. A few weeks later, there was a public execution for that adultery. But it wasn't her. It was Jesus. There is a consequence for your sin. No one one just gets off free. The penalty for sin is death. But it's already been paid for. That day, when Jesus died for her adultery, he died for your struggle too. He died for my struggle as well. There is a consequence for sin, but it's already been paid. The Apostle James, it says, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Because of Jesus, our focus does not have to be on purging ourselves. Instead, our focus is only to embrace the love and power of God from running into our lives. Sin does not need to keep us from running to Jesus. Jesus' arms are wide open. He's calling us. He's gotten rid of every single barrier. There's nothing too shameful. You name anything. There's nothing too shameful that Jesus cannot overcome. There's not, no sin you have is more powerful than the power of God. Don't let sin keep you from running to Jesus. I just want to wrap with a couple things. Um, I think there are some people in this room, some of us in this room, who have kept sin, who have let sin and insecurity and failure, whatever it is, who have let sin, allowed sin to keep us from running to Jesus. We're too ashamed. 
We're too embarrassed. We, we think, certainly, Jesus, you want me to clean this up first before I come to you. That, that's what we think. I need to tell you. I need to tell you that your sin is not stronger than his love for you. Your worst moment is when he died for you. The, and the heartbreak of Jesus giving his life, of doing everything, and then, and then us saying, you know, Jesus, I, I still don't feel worthy. I still don't. Jesus has overcome every sin. There is no barrier, no barrier. Now, all you need to do is say, is say to God, Jesus, my heart is yours. My heart is yours. My life is yours. I might not think I'm much. I might not think I'm worthy, but I know you love me. All my cards are on the table. Take me as I am. You don't have to always understand all the right things. You don't have to do all the right things. You don't have to say all the right things, but God's arms are wide open. Some of us have been struggling with things for a very, very long time, a very long time. Things that we are ashamed of, things that maybe we have squashed down, things that we have stopped talking about or stopped thinking about it because we're so embarrassed. And when we feel, when we're talking about a relationship with God, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Your relationship with God is defined by you trying to overcome a particular struggle that you have. That is your, that is your struggle. And all, all you want is to be free. And you, you might think to yourself, when I'm free for this, then I can be a good Christian. Then I, then I can move forward. Then I can finally understand whatever that is. And for you, I, I want to challenge you with something. Um, what would happen if the focus of your relationship with God was not on your sin, but on his grace? What if the focus of your relationship with God was not on your sin, but on his grace? Um, what if your number one goal in your relationship with God was not to get rid of your sin? What if your number one goal was to know Jesus as closely as possible? And, and when you think of God, you don't think, man, I, need, I really need to clean that up. Man, I really need to cut that out. Oh, man, I'm so embarrassed. I don't even want to talk about it. God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What if when you thought of your relationship with God, it was drawing as closely to God as you can? Listen, this woman that Jesus forgives, I don't think she ever, I, I, don't, I don't think she never struggled sexually ever again. I don't, I don't think she was like, boom, okay, now I'm never gonna sin again. Maybe she didn't have another affair, maybe. But I'm sure for, forever she struggled with insecurities. Forever she struggled with self-doubt. For the rest of her time on, on earth, she struggled thinking about her past and being defined by her past. But she had a hope. She had a greater hope. And this is what I want to tell you about. That for those of us that have given our hearts to Jesus, even though we struggle now, even if we can never shake it, even if we can never shake it, if we have given our hearts and lives over to Jesus, when we stand before the throne of God at the end of our lives, God is not going to be like, well, you kept messing up, so you must not have meant it. God's not gonna have a list of every single failure if we are in Jesus. Instead, God is gonna have a note that says, this person is paid for by Christ. Jesus already died for this person. All your sin has been paid for. Listen, if your focus with your relationship with God was not on sin, but instead on the grace of God, Jesus, Jesus will deal with the sin. He'll get there. He'll expose it. For those that have numbed ourselves, he'll bring that to the surface but he'll do that on his own time because the focus that Jesus brings is not necessarily on our failure, but on his power and what he can do in broken people like you and I. I'm gonna say a prayer and um, as we wrap, uh, for, first I'm, I'm gonna say a prayer for, for those of us 
who really, really need to give our hearts to Jesus, um, who have let sin, who have let the things in our lives, who have let our insecurities, whatever it is, um, block us uh, from running to God, who has open arms. And then I'm going to say a prayer, um, and you can pray it in your hearts as well, for those of us that are struggling with the same thing. It's been the same thing for a real long time, and we, we just feel defeated, we feel tired, we feel unworthy. The shame is just growing over time. And I'm going to pray for the first, that, that we can give our hearts over to Jesus, the only one who can transform. And the second, that our focus would be on God's grace, and that God would, that Christ would get so deeply into our hearts that he will transform us in any way that he wants on his own time. You pray with me. Father God, um, God, thank you for our time together. Thanks for um, showing us this about yourself, about your own heart. God, first I want to pray for anyone in the room um, right now who, who has not given their heart to you. Uh, Jesus, would you give them the courage to say, uh, Jesus, I know. I know I'm broken. Um, I know I'm struggling. Uh, I, I know I've had my worst moments. But God, I know you love me, and I, I want your heart to be in, my heart to be in your hands. I want my life to be in your hands. God, take me as I am. All my cards are on the table. And do with what you want with me on your own time. And Father, I want to pray for us that are struggling with sin. Um, God, would you let the cry of our heart be a cry of worship? Um, Not that we aren't broken. Not that there is no penalty. Not that there is no consequence. Uh, But would you let our focus be on the power, the love, the grace of you? Would you let us worship you with abandon? knowing that no matter what happens on earth now, because we are in you, that we are saved, that we are part of your family, that we are part of your kingdom. And one day, whenever that is, um, God, you would bring us to, to perfect harmony with your heart. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your grace every single day. In your name.